0: Hello, this LODcast is focused on the topic of well-being for legal professionals. As of publication, it's 10 October 2022 and it's World Mental Health Day. To explore this topic, I spoke with leading wellness advocate, author, former lawyer, and current editor of Lawyers Weekly, Jerome Dorosami. In this episode, we dive into why wellness is such an important topic and discuss strategies and tips for how in-house lawyers can better manage their own wellness. So, without further ado, let's get into it. Hi, Jerome. Thanks for joining. Can you tell our listeners a bit about who you are?
1: Sure. Yeah. So, I'm uh, I'm the editor of Lawyers Weekly. Well, actually, I should probably start by saying my full name. My name is Jerome Dorosami. I'm <laughs> the editor of Lawyers Weekly. I used to be a lawyer, but then left legal practice as I. Uh, well, uh, two th- main things. One, I decided it wasn't for me. I enjoyed, you know, reading and writing about law as opposed to actually practicing it. So now that's what I do and also speak about law rather than being a practicing solicitor. Um, but also, you know, by virtue of, um, mental health issues that I suffered about a decade ago, I decided that law wasn't really going to be the profession for me. So yeah, now I'm the editor of Lawyers Weekly. I'm also a board director of the Minds Count Foundation, which used to be the Tristan Jepsen Memorial Foundation, for those of you who might know that name. And I'm the author of two books, uh, two self-help books, The Wellness Doctrines for Law Students and Young Lawyers, and the other ones, The Wellness Doctrines for High School Students. So yeah, that's me in a nutshell.
0: Great thanks and thanks so much for joining. I should say that for the benefit of the listeners Jerome interviewed me on his podcast just two days ago so it's a bit of a role reversal but it's, it's really great to have you and and we're going to time this episode along with International Mental Health Day so on October 10 so that it's going to be very much with that in mind. So let's go to our first question really and yeah. and so today's Episode is focused on on a topic close to your heart, wellness. Can we perhaps start with an understanding of of why you've been writing and consulting in wellness? Where where did that drive? Where did that impetus come from?
1: Sure. So as I alluded to just earlier, I had my own mental health issues. Just about eleven years ago, I suffered a breakdown and subsequently had you know severe clinical anxiety and depression, which I was sort of badly afflicted with for approximately eighteen months. And then you know, of course, you know you have a sort of road to recovery from there. And, uh, you know, that impacted my ability to take up a graduate job as a lawyer or work in any kind of role, really, for, for, for a period mm-hmm. until I was finally able to, you know, in sort of around late 2013, early 2014. And so my, I guess, my motivation for or passion for, you know, wellness advocacy stems from the fact that I, I didn't want any other law student or young lawyer to experience what I had. You know, I sort of looked around and realized how prevalent issues of psychological distress, anxiety, depression, suicide, ideation, disordered eating uh, were in law. And that made me really upset and angry. To think that not enough was perhaps being done to address those issues, and that, so that's why I wrote my first book, which came out at the end of 2015, and I've been sort of speaking around the country and internationally about those issues you know, ever since. But yeah, but yeah I, I'm really driven to ensure that you know what happened to me doesn't happen to others. I mean, of course, that's not something that's entirely possible to achieve, but you know, if 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 the work I do in this space can help you know even one person, then that's a positive difference.
0: Fantastic, and. Well, well, thanks for sharing that. That's. I think it's really helpful to people know where, where you're coming from because I think that informs a lot of how you write and how you think about it. I think it's it's highly relevant. And actually, today I didn't realize really plan this, but today is well gratitude day, which is maybe something we can touch on later uh, when we talk about wellness. But before we get there, it's a. This is a question that I like to throw at people, and it's what what do you think people get wrong about wellness?
1: What what are some myths or some misnomers you see? In in the public, well, I, I suppose probably that people assume well. There's two things. First of all, that people assume it's something that only happens to other people, which was certainly my impression of it up until the time that I actually did realise that I had anxiety and depression. Suppose a, a self perception that you know that only happens to others. You know, I, I'm sort of strong mm. enough to to deal with things myself. And I think what people don't necessarily realize is that, you know, that not one of us has 100% perfect mental health. Everybody gets stressed, everybody gets anxious. It's just a matter of where, as a society, we choose to draw a line in the sand as to what's a diagnosable condition and what's not. And so we need to have a more collective awareness of the fact that we're all afflicted by these traits, by these issues, and therefore we need to have a greater level of compassion for each other. The other thing that I think we all get wrong about wellness is presuming that any uh, such affliction is a weakness, whereas I think that it's actually the other way around. And if you are able to identify and recognize that you are struggling from a certain issue, be it anxiety, depression, suicide, ideation, disordered eating, whatever, if you're able to identify that and take steps to address it, then that's actually a real strength of yours. And if you're not dealing with that, then you're not showcasing that strength. So in in that sense, you know, th- those who are taking steps to rectify their health issues, those who are speaking up about it, they're not weak, they're actually strong. Hmm.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And is that something that you that you, you know, if you're in a conversation and people are talking about awareness, do you ever struggle struggle to not pipe up and correct people when they talk about things like?
1: Funnily enough, I I, I don't find that people are necessarily as stigmatising about these things as perhaps they might have been back in the day. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot more, certainly awareness of the issues and and definitely an increased level of compassion. But I I think it's more about self-stigma these days like, you know people definitely think that it's important that we have these conversations but they there's still part of them that doesn't necessarily want to be that person you know they don't want to be the the sort of black sheep in the in in the workplace or, or or whatever it is and and so what i think is important is is for us to be able to correct those people to use the term you did to remind them that it is okay for you to be that and you know you should feel comfortable being treated the way you you would want to treat somebody else if they were going through uh, similar things. And you should be comfortable enough to give yourself a break in a sense and be self-compassionate because if your best friend or if your colleague was suffering, you'd want to help them and therefore you should be you should want to help yourself as well.
0: Yeah, and I, I wonder whether it's accurate to say the legal profession has improved over the past decade or two. We were actually, I think, practising in a similar time, so early 2010s. And even then there was... I think beginning to be a fairly genuine reckoning with mental health in the legal profession. I think a lot of people still got it wrong, but when you we when you would speak to people about it then, the way they would talk about the 80s and 90s were very different to how we experience it now. So do you think the do you think we're getting it right? Obviously there's always room for improvement, but do you think the general trajectory
1: is reassuring? I'm not sure if We can say just yet that we're getting it right. I think we're certainly Hmm. headed in the right direction. Mm. Uh, you know, you alluded to what the case was earlier. You know, in this century, and I think in the last ten, fifteen years, we've made significant strides in better addressing these issues, ensuring that individuals and you know, in, in and institutions are more comfortable talking about these issues and, and and taking steps to address them. Whether it's the whether we're getting it right is probably an, an evolving and mm-hmm. fluid conversation. There are definitely examples of employers and team leaders who are absolutely doing the right thing and and uh you know they're really showcasing a positive example for the rest of the profession and at the other end of the spectrum there are still partners and general counsel and team leaders who are getting it wrong and you know we can objectively <laughs> say that's the case on the whole i think we're certainly headed in the right direction but uh, you know in the new normal post pandemic there's probably going to need to be a little bit of a revamp and you know, a rethink as to what is the right direction, you know, because workplaces are much more scattered and remote now. And the idea of being a team leader and managing that team Monday to Friday, nine to five in the office, you know, that's a thing of the past. And so what it means to be a good leader, what it means for an employer to effectively manage health and well-being of all of their staff, you know, there, there, there's changing definitions of that. So uh, whether we're getting it right or not uh, is something that we're going to have to consistently evaluate.
0: Absolutely. Jerome, earlier you mentioned that you're a board member on the Minds Count Foundation. Do you want to quickly share with listeners a, a bit about what that charity does?
1: Absolutely. So, the Minds Count Foundation, as I mentioned, is the the new name for what was the Tristan Jepsen Memorial Foundation, which was founded, I think, just over fifteen years ago, following the the tragic suicide of a young lawyer, Tristan Jepsen. The foundation was set up by his parents, Mari and George, and its intention, at least in those initial years, was to raise awareness of the prevalence of psychological distress, anxiety, and depression amongst the Australian legal profession, and to ensure, and then to set in place are best practice guidelines for all legal employers to better cater to and accommodate, uh, you know, the idiosyncratic wellness needs of everyone working for them. That latter goal, the, those best practice guidelines, is still very much at the at the centre of what the new newly named Minds Count Foundation and, you know, we're consistently looking for new legal employers to subscribe to those guidelines and to ensure that they are, you know, an employer of choice in, in you know, more ways than one. But the foundation is also very keen, you know, as it undergoes its current revamp to better engage with, you know, law firms a lot legal departments across the country government organizations to you know check in with how they're doing to you know host a lot you know seminars a lot more lectures and workshops so that we can keep the flame alive you know ensure that this conversation isn't going away and it's not just something that you know we talk about on world mental health day or are you okay day or anything else and so yeah, there's a lot lot of things that the minds account foundation will be looking to do moving forward and if anyone does want to know more about it or if they want to get involved somehow please feel free to get in touch with myself or, or Melinda Upton, is our chair.
0: Fantastic. And I'll include in the show notes a link to their website and also also your t- details, Jerome, because that is, you know, that's fighting the good fight, that, that work. Now, obviously, wellness is a topic which affects lawyers of all demographics, but I think junior lawyers can be particularly vulnerable to instances of stress, mental health, and they're not yet often experienced enough and know how to deal with it. So what advice do you have for more junior, in particular, I mean, junior lawyers, but in-house as well, because there's different complexities for in-house lawyers. How do you think they can develop a sustainable approach to their own wellness? So, not just the the cupcake and are you okay day, a more holistic,
1: sustainable approach. Sure. So, my my advice would be the same, regardless of whether a lawyer is in-house or not, whether they're a junior lawyer or not, and that and that is that you are a person first and a lawyer second. The the, the latter cannot exist without the former. You know, if you're not a healthy, happy individual—you're not going to be a productive, successful professional. And so, it's incumbent upon you to make time rather than find time to look after. You have to be selfish in that sense, even though you shouldn't think of it as selfishness. This, you know, this is self-care. Yeah, it's incumbent upon you to ensure that you're managing your health and well-being as best you possibly can in ways that make sense to you. you know, join a book club, join, join a team sport, go to the gym. You know. Listen to podcasts, whatever it is that makes you feel better about yourself, keeps your physical, emotional, psychological health going, do those things and don't compromise on them. And you know because you're a lawyer, because you are a, you know a servant of the court, servant of, the, of your clients, it, you have a responsibility to ensure that you can provide that service to the best of your ability, and part of that means looking after yourself and ensuring that you you know your battery isn't dying, that you are recharged every day when you wake up, and that you're motivated to get out of bed in the morning. So yeah, you're a person first and a lawyer second. That's my that's my advice.
0: Easy, easy to remember, and I also like the the turn of phrase you had there, Jerome, about make time not find time, because I think that that is definitely reflects a truth for busy professionals where they'll say, oh, I'll need to find time to do all this stuff. And and I guess what you're suggesting is you know, you actually need to make time, actively block out in your diary or, or, or keep things certain time sacrosanct. And I think actually a lot of the tools that we use are getting better at doing that. Certainly the Microsoft suite of tools, they've got their own, you know, Viva insights, things like that, which Provide you, you know, you're probably working too much or you're really busy after hours, here are some steps you can take. So I think there's certainly not just the profession but also the systems and tools that we use are also evolving, which I think is probably worth worth noting. Definitely. I think that make time, you know, if I reflect, if I was a junior lawyer and I'm listening to this, I would probably think it's, it's very easy to say make time, not find time. How do you, because there will be people there will be really crunchy deadlines whether that you're in litigation and it's a court deadline if you're an m and a it's a you know it's it's a contractual deadline how do you you know without getting into physically you know one on one blow by blow coaching someone but how do you think you can actually manage upwards i guess
1: yeah Sure. So, well, I, th- I think there's two things there. First of all, you know, the idea of making time rather than finding time. Of course, there's occasionally going to be a moment when a client asks, gives you a deadline at the 11th hour and you're going to have to work around the clock. You know, there's not a lot you can do about that. And sometimes, yeah, you're going to have to miss your mixed netball game or your gym class or, you know, whatever it is in order to complete that task for, for the client. But the idea of making time rather than finding time is more about ensuring that you're in the best possible position to look after your health and well-being. Because if you are making that, that time, say by way of booking in a gym class, then you are more likely to be in a position where you can look after your health and wellbeing, as opposed to working a long day and then just hoping that you'll get to the gym. The other thing to, to, to say is that, you know, if you are looking to manage upwards, you know, a, a, as you ask, then I think open, transparent communication is really important. I, I think that we're getting to a point now where general counsel, you know, partners, team leaders are much more respectful of those coming through the ranks who are upfront about you know their needs you know personally and otherwise and you know we'll say that you know look I've got my weekly indoor soccer game on Wednesday night it's really important to me that I make it I'll make sure the work gets done later on tonight and I think that, you know, most bosses nowadays, you know, if you just have that conversation with them and you give your parameters, as long as the work gets done, they're not really going to care too much, or at least they shouldn't if they're reasonable. <laughs> so yeah, just have those open, honest conversations. You know, if you don't ask, you don't get. And, you know, sometimes you get what you negotiate, not what you deserve. So just mm-hmm. have the chat. The worst that can happen is they say no when you've got a you know, Revamp your schedule a little bit in order to fit in with what your team needs. But in most cases, I think bosses are going to be pretty accommodating, particularly at this time when we're in the you know the supposed Great Resignation or mass exodus, and you know employers want to make sure that they can hang on to staff. So in a sense, right now it's a candidates market. So leverage what you can. Absolutely, and I also think I wonder, like a final
0: thought before we wrap up, and I wonder, you know, you're a human first, you're a lawyer second. But I think if you're a full, you know, if you're a flourishing human, you're more likely to be a flourishing lawyer. But it's also the case that if you are doing these social activities, which we know, you know, scientifically proven to assist with mental health, we, we we need to be part of a community. But if you're a young lawyer in a law firm or in-house and you're out there meeting lots of people and you're networking at sporting events or or whatever, it doesn't have to be sports, obviously, but at different community events, that's. Generally, going to be a net positive thing for the employer because then you have a networked workforce who are not only happy and he- healthy and hopefully more balanced in their life, but they also
1: know more helpful business connections. Is, is that do you reckon that's a valid point? Oh, that's absolutely a valid point. I, I think the more sort of upfront you can be in that sense, the more you make you know these conversations part of your personal branding. I think the more people will respect you. Um, mm-hmm yeah i i think that you know, uh, we're getting to a stage, you know, in the modern marketplace where people are looking for a more holistic solution to, you know, whatever legal problems they have. And you know, the more active you are out in the community, the more the more engaged you are on LinkedIn or Instagram, the, the more you're showcasing, you know, the broader appeal of yourself as a to clients or to employers. I, I think the better off you're going to be. And, and and for me, wellness is a huge part of that. The more in touch you are, you know, with 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 your capacities, your limitations, I I I I, I think. You know, the, the more attractive you're going, you're going to be to the broader market, and, and people shouldn't be afraid to, you know, be themselves and, and, and to talk about, you know, whatever is plaguing them. Obviously, there are some constraints on that, and you should always be mindful. But we are certainly increasingly cognizant and, and certainly increasingly empathetic as a profession, as a society, to these issues, and you know, we shouldn't shy away just because we might have self stigma.
0: Brilliant. Well, Jerome, thank you so much. The final question really is, if you have any thoughts or anything about wellness that we haven't yet covered that you think we should perhaps mention before we wrap up.
1: I think the only other thing I would add is that self-compassion and self-kindness is, is so critical. This is, uh, has been one of my biggest mistakes over the years is not affording myself the same kindness that I would show to others if they were suffering from certain issues and and allowing yourself to to fall sometimes, to stumble in remembering that you don't always always have to be number one at every single thing you do it's okay not to be okay obviously and it's and it's okay to fail sometimes so yeah, have, have a bit more kindness to yourself a bit more compassion for yourself and, and and if you're not so hard on yourself as an individual things will suddenly become a lot easier
0: well it just leaves me to say thank you so much for joining us on lodcast today jerome you're a big friend of the of lod and it's great to
1: finally have you on the podcast oh it's great to chat to you mark appreciate you having me